Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at The Turning Tides Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Warning, this episode of Turning Tides contains graphic descriptions of violence, acts of war, murder, suicide, sexual assault, and racism. Barack Obama took office during a truly unprecedented time in American history. He easily defeated the veteran-turned-senator John McCain. For his part, McCain refused to buckle under an early populist resurgence in the Republican Party. Racists were touting a conspiracy theory that Barack Obama was not an American citizen and that he was born in Kenya. In reality, his mother was born in Kansas, thus granting her children American citizen status. And Barack Obama was born in Hawaii regardless. This theory was popularized by Donald J. Trump, but it existed on right-wing internet forums prior to this and was championed by people calling themselves birthers. During the first few years of Obama's presidency, he and his administration attempted to curtail the widening economic crisis and the burden it had placed upon the shoulders of the American people. Much like FDR, Obama faced middling success at first. Following 2010, however, the economy began to seriously turn around. As more people found work, stock prices rose to unprecedented heights, crime reached all-time lows, and Americans witnessed a wage increase following inflation, which was over 5%. But even with all the advancements Obama's administration made, Few of them were in the area of labor rights. In November 2009, Russell Athletic reopened a Honduran plant it had closed in response to its workers' unionization. It would take a grassroots movement to reverse the company's decision to close. The United Students Against Sweatshops decried the company's choice. Students waged a campaign of targeted action against retailers who sold their merchandise, college administrators who had lucrative deals with Russell Athletics, and major college sporting events. This was not the publicity the company was expecting. They assumed their dealings in far-off Central America would never drum up activism in the United States. This show of solidarity was interesting because... For the first time, American labor activists were actively collaborating with transnational unions instead of attempting to undermine them with subversive CIA influence. This is one of the clearest examples of a reinvigorated labor movement. As the recession ended, working people found their voices. 
Following years of being beaten down and cowed into submission, work actions began to sweep the nation once more. It started on the island of Puerto Rico and the jail cells of Georgia. In Puerto Rico, the University of Rio Pedras was shut down by protesters who were furious with the governor, Luis Fortunio. He claimed that he needed to let go of 30,000 public employees due to the financial crisis. In Georgia, thousands of prisoners went on strike to protest for better working conditions. It was the largest strike action in prison history. Authorities responded callously to the human being seeking human treatment. Many were thrown in lockup simply for refusing to work. 2011 was the beginning of the largely peaceful Occupy Wall Street movement. This worldwide movement did not go without criticism from moderates and conservatives alike. In total, from 2011 to 2016, over 30 people would die, hundreds would be hurt, and thousands would be arrested for various crimes. The main failing of Occupy was its vagueness. It was formed through anger, through the shared experiences of exploitation suffered by millions. In any social movement like that, the lack of definitive, achievable goals is almost always the main failing. In many respects, Occupy mirrors the 1877 railroad strike. Thankfully, authorities did not respond as despicably as they did in those bygone labor days. The activists who made up Occupy called themselves 99 percenters, in reference to the 1% of the population who controls the majority of the wealth. Occupy sacrificed itself for labor, but labor would not let the movement die in vain. Strikes began to ramp up all across the country. The ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach were shut down by workers who were seeking more protection from outsourcing. Their employers submitted to many of the union's demands. Nurses in Tacoma, Washington were next to take to the picket lines. They succeeded in their action to demand more health resources for their community. In 2015, oil workers across the country left their drill platforms to protest for better treatment. The United Steelworkers, who represented the oil workers, alleged bad faith bargaining and active attempts by employers to impede their employees' collective bargaining rights. Shell responded by hiring what it called relief employees, while also cajoling hundreds of wary workers back to work. Collar, Wisconsin was next. This would be the fourth strike in the city's hundred-year-long history. Collar's union workers were infamously derided by Barry Goldwater as he attempted to unsuccessfully dress down Walter Ruther. Employers did not learn their lesson. Once again, they were attempting to manipulate the townspeople with tier employment, which is just a fancy phrase that means, I'm going to pay you less for the same amount of work. After more than a month of protesting, employers laid themselves prostrate at the UAW's feet and submitted to union demands for better pay among tier A and B employees. Since then, technology has been advancing at a breakneck pace. Home computing and the birth of the smartphone changed the lives of everyone, whether they like it or not. Likewise, video games are no longer a niche thing, 
Billions of people play video games created by AAA video game development companies like Activision, Electronic Arts, and Take-Two Interactive. In spite of the billions they've raked in in profits, they've paid their game developers and their voice actors a mere pittance. SAG-AFTRA, which represents actors who appear on television, film, and in voice roles, sought to change these egregious standards. In a 370-day strike, which was the longest in SAG-AFTRA history, employers finally agreed to a sliding pay scale for voice actors. Even then, the union failed to gain residual payments for talent. Throughout this contentious time in the workplaces of America, Barack Obama's administration was relatively quiet when it came to improving union rights. During his first term, his administration succeeded in fixing the American economy and making it much more competitive in world markets. During his second term, Obama would attempt to expose the shambolic nature of the health care system in America and gut it. The Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare as it is derisively called, was a large step toward some form of quote-unquote socialized medicine in America. This bill alleviated the economic burden on the poorest of Americans when it came to finding affordable health care. Thanks to its passage, by the end of Obama's second term, only 9% of Americans went without health insurance. Obama wanted the bill to go further, but a conservative Congress would not allow such radical steps to be taken. Regardless, it was one of the first active attempts made by an American president to alleviate the suffering of those living in poverty and make some change to the backward and detrimental health care system which is currently in place. To state the opinion of the superhero Starfire from the children's show Teen Titans Go, quote, So, this insurance is a scam, yes? Unquote. Yes, Starfire. Yes, it is. Initiatives similar to the ACA have been presented by presidents since JFK's administration, but Obama was the only president to successfully push forward this initiative for change in the private health sector. To this day, America still falls woefully behind their European neighbors when it comes to health care expenditure per capita. The main reason for this lag in progress is that the health care budget has always played second fiddle to the military budget in America. Obama repeatedly claimed troops would be leaving Iraq for good. In 2011, Obama announced the troops, quote, would be home for the holidays, unquote. They would be home for about three years until 2014. ISIL, or the Islamic State in Levant, began sweeping over Syria and northern Iraq, causing mass devastation. During the Sinjar massacre, over 3,000 Yazdi ethnic minorities were murdered, more than 10,000 were abducted, and half a million people were displaced. Obama begrudgingly reinforced the region with American troops. Over 4,400 American troops took part in the campaign to defeat ISIL. Many still populate the region. Over 900 servicemen are stationed in northern Syria, supporting America's Kurdish allies, while over 2,000 Americans live and train with Iraqi security forces throughout the country. Obama believed the true fight was in Afghanistan. 
he took active steps to increase American presence there. By February of 2014, American forces in Afghanistan numbered 68,000. The soldiers did what they could to prevent the state from falling after wreaking havoc on the area, but once they left, chaos ensued and the Taliban took over in a matter of weeks. The violence and chaos caused by American interventionist policies did not stop there. Obama allowed for the mass use of drone warfare against so-called suspected terrorists. Starting in 2009, he began using the devastating attacks often, at one point allegedly telling advisors he was, quote, surprisingly good at killing people, unquote. Throughout his presidency, Barack Obama carried out more than 500 drone strikes, which killed at least six to 800 people. Donald J. Trump would increase the use of drone strikes precipitously. In two years, between 2016 and 2018, 14 civilians were killed in Somalia, 150 civilians were killed in Afghanistan, and over 1,000 were killed in Syria and Iraq, but this number may be as high as 7,000, according to independent sources. Trump rescinded Obama-era regulations about drone strikes and their reporting. He also increased the so-called areas of operation for U.S. drone strikes to include Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, and Libyan airspace. Trump was an American-first isolationist when it came to his economic policy, and when it came to his foreign policy, he demonstrated just how far he was willing to take his ideology. The full extent of drone strikes under the second half of the Trump administration has yet to be revealed. It's widely agreed upon, however, that the use of drone strikes declined as Trump turned inward to face an enemy he could not order to be killed or otherwise eradicated. Following the Ebola and swine flu scares which plagued America during Obama's presidency, Obama's administration created a thorough disease response team which belonged to the NSA. Once Trump took power, he had this team gutted. When COVID-19 first arrived in America from Italian shores, Trump banned travel to China and concluded that the disease would, quote, magically disappear, unquote. It did not. COVID-19 was absolutely calamitous for America. Its sweeping of the nation probably could not have been prevented, but its initial impact as well as its ability to stick around, could have been lessened had Trump's administration taken the proper steps to contain, trace, and study the virus. Instead, the pandemic was dealt with on an ad hoc basis by a pandemic crisis team headed by Mike Pence and Trump's nephew-in-law, Jared Kushner. Thanks to the Trump administration's incompetence in the face of the national crisis, the government nearly destroyed the nation's economy. Trillions, with a T, were given to Wall Street by the Fed Bank in preparation for the ensuing recession. Millions were made jobless through no fault of their own. I was amongst this jobless horde, unable to return to my bartending job in midtown Manhattan and unable to afford the high rent that came with living in New York City without it. Amongst those still working were the essential workers. 
They ranged the gambit from nurses and construction workers to truck drivers and farmers. The vast majority of them were women, over 75%. 45% of those considered essential were black, Asian American or Pacific Islander, Latine or unspecified. 69% of all essential workers had less than a full college education. Only 5% of the financial sector was considered essential. Most of these were white-collar bank tellers. The statistics become even more interesting when broken down by union representation. 12% of essential workers are represented by unions, while 11% of non-essential workers receive union representation as well. However, in several critical sectors, these numbers shift drastically. In manufacturing, 16% of essential workers had union representation. In the waste and wastewater management sector, 26% of essential workers had a union card. And in the healthcare industry, 51% of essential workers benefited from a union. In response to the pandemic, labor unions across America made sure to demand protections for their workers. The AFL-CIO has actively demanded the Department of Labor enforce policies which would aim to aid those workers affected by COVID, while also increasing safety standards. Other unions actively demanded their bosses protect them better. The Transport Workers Union and the Amalgamated Transit Union demanded their 300,000 essential members be given adequate safety equipment. This continued with the United Food and Commercial Workers, with their victory for more sick leave and better PPE for on-site workers. As these meager concessions were begrudgingly given to workers, trillions of government dollars were thrown at Wall Street. Working people who actually needed the money to sustain themselves and their families were given two stimulus checks and over a year of grief, stress, sickness, and death. The response to the coronavirus pandemic would have been enough on its own to rank Trump amongst the worst presidents of all time. But this is only the first link in a chain of poorly executed and shoddily led ventures in which Trump partook as commander-in-chief. Across the country, children died in their schools, the victims of what have overwhelmingly been right-wing terrorists who were armed with guns they were only able to obtain because of lax government policy. At first, Trump actively called out several high-ranking Republicans for their stance on guns. But his tune became changed as time wore on. In reality, he did nothing but pay lip service to the dead and personally foster the conditions which bred more violence, hate, and shootings in the country he was charged to lead through this crisis. Racial violence was also spreading. Police violence against black people was being documented in all of its grotesqueness. The widespread implementation of body cameras, as well as the advent of cell phone cameras and recording devices, have made it difficult for law enforcement to hide their misdeeds under a stack of incorrectly documented paperwork. After decades of America sweeping racial violence under the rug, police brutality and the butchering of innocents as young as 12 could now be viewed nearly every night on the local news station. The Black Lives Matter movement began, and various activist groups began calling for the police to be defunded and demilitarized. 
Following the shootings of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Philando Castile in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, protests swept the nation. In Dallas, an irate and unstable former Army reservist opened fire on police, killing six law enforcement officials and wounding many more. Following a several-hour-long standoff, the shooter was killed by a bomb which was detonated by a remote-controlled robot. It was the first use of such technology in American law enforcement history. Police brutality has still not been properly addressed in the United States. Following the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police and the subsequent mishandling of the fallout from the horrific murder, protests erupted across the country during the summer of 2020. Authorities responded with a reactionary campaign of terror against protesters. In Buffalo, an old man was slammed on his head by Buffalo police. In New York City, crowds of protesters were mowed down by NYPD police SUVs as they pushed through street barriers and protesters alike. In Washington, D.C., National Guardsmen were used to disperse a peaceful protest. It was a return to the good old skull-cracking approach authorities always turn to when confronted with their own misdeeds. This time, instead of actual bullets, they used rubber bullets and chemical warfare to disperse teenagers frustrated with the state of the country they are set to inherit. In Seattle, Washington, the Chapel Hill Autonomous Zone was declared. Also known as CHAZ, it could be accurately described as America's second commune the first being in St. Louis, Missouri, circa 1877. Much like that commune, Chaz was deemed unlawful and police came in with billy club swinging before arresting dozens. Alongside this surge in protests against police violence, militia and right-wing groups began dispensing their own vigilante justice. In 2017, the Unite the Right rally devolved into violence when a fascist ran down a crowd of counter-marchers. One woman would die while another 20 would be injured. In response, Trump said, I think there is blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it. Come the 2020 elections, Trump would lose emphatically by tens of millions of votes to Joseph R. Biden. In the aftermath of the election, Trump claimed massive voter fraud. This is just incorrect. Republicans have not won a majority of votes cast since 2004, and before that, it was 1992. The fact that Bush won in 2000 and Trump won in 2016 has everything to do with the highly flawed Electoral College, which was conceived at a time of plutocracy by founding fathers who could have never imagined their small nation would someday be home to nearly 500 million souls, as well as the Democratic Party's unwillingness to have a spine when faced with erroneous and ineffective Republican ideology and policy. On January 6, 2021, egged on by Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, and Steve Bannon, far-right protesters committed treason and attacked the United States Capitol. Throughout history, any march on the Capitol by left-wing elements has been met with an immediate and swift response by authorities, whether the protests were peaceful or not. On January 6, 2021, there would be no nonviolent marching. 
These insurrectionists stormed into the capital intent on revoking democracy. QAnon, neo-Confederates, 3% militia members, the American neo-Nazis, allegedly helped along by lawmakers like Donald Trump, killed nine people. Five would die on the scene, four would take their own lives in the following months due to PTSD caused by the incident. Trump's administration was defined by constant crisis, scandal, and ignorance. In spite of these facts, Trump enjoyed massive support from the white working class. People came out of the woodwork in places like Florida and Ohio to vote for Trump and his new-look MAGA Republican Party. Upon taking office, Trump began doing away with the few Obama-era labor initiatives that had managed to pass. Late in Obama's second term, he mandated the creation of micro-unions, reconfigured the rules the Department of Labor used when defining overtime, and made elections easier for unions to win by mandating employers provide information to union officials such as phone numbers and personal addresses. These common-sense regulations on the labor market were quickly rescinded by Donald Trump, the courts, or Congress. It was now up to Joe Biden and his administration to attempt to mend the severely frayed fabric of American society. The Delaware politician was vice president during both of Obama's terms in office. Prior to that, he was a career senator and an integral part of the Senate during the conservative resurgence of the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s. He supported several controversial measures in his early tenure. In 1973, he gave a speech in which he voiced support for a form of de facto segregation as it pertained to the Southern busing system. Biden would go on to help pass the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, this law has been widely criticized by progressives as being one of the leading factors in the mass incarceration of the black community. Biden would later call this law, quote, a big mistake which trapped an entire generation, unquote. Biden was also largely responsible for the approval of Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. Thomas was accused of sexual harassment by a law professor, but Biden would not allow several witnesses to take the stand, including experts on the subject and another woman who accused Thomas of a similar act. This comes as no shock, as Biden has multiple allegations against him as well. Taking office on January 20th, 2021, Joseph Biden would have to deal with these skeletons, bury them, or ignore them in order to effectively govern a broken country. A resurgent labor movement would greet the Democratic president. He had to choose to embrace labor or make an enemy of it. Labor, meanwhile, had found a wellspring of life, and they would harness their new power zealously. Strikes, work actions, and protests were sweeping the world like never before. The statistics demonstrate this fact. Major work actions in America lay dormant for a while. There were only 17 throughout the entire United States from 1999 to 2009. From 2009 to 2019, 27 major work actions and protests took place. So far, from 2020 to 2023, 
33 separate strikes have begun and concluded or are still ongoing. The shocking resurgence has much to do with a reinvigorated interest in working rights, economic fallout from the coronavirus pandemic, and pro-labor actions by the government. As controversial as it might be to say, I believe Joseph R. Biden, for all his many faults as a man and a politician, is perhaps the most pro-labor president in American history. Since being handed the reins of power, Biden has made several huge steps toward increasing worker and union rights. Through appointments and dismissals, laws backed, and executive orders mandated, Biden has managed to overcome substantial opposition from anti-union conservatives in Congress and in the media alike. He personally purged the National Labor Review Board and filled its ranks with former union members and officials. Next, he purged the Department of Labor of MAGA Republicans and <gasps> put a steel worker in charge of OSHA? He also made, am I reading this right, a former teacher the head of the Department of Education? In 2022, Biden signed an executive order which mandated a minimum wage of $15 per hour for all federally contracted employees. He followed up on this by rescinding a Trump-era mandate which forbade organizing amongst Department of Defense employees. Under Trump, these employees defended the security of the nation, but Trump would still not allow them to organize for their benefit. Beyond this... Biden strengthened the country's Buy American policy. Thanks to his loosening of certain restrictions, over $120 billion will remain in America instead of being used to purchase foreign goods. Finally, he mandated that federal employees be given easier access to union representation. Thanks to initiatives like this, 20% more federal employees are now represented by a union. In Congress, despite conservative opposition from both parties, Biden has managed to pass several key bills with bipartisan support. He created a massive, quote, wind energy zone, unquote, designed to power 10 million homes and provide America with 44,000 green union jobs. He also ratified one of the first major pieces of gun control legislation in history, which provides for some mental health care outreach. Finally, and most importantly for union rights, he passed the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. This act gave $110 billion to roads and bridges, $11 billion to transportation safety programs, $39 billion to the modernization of infrastructure and improving accessibility, $66 billion to rail development in both freight and passenger lines almost $8 billion to developing a national network of electric car chargers, $73 billion for the development and overhaul of the nation's electric grid, and $65 billion to the development of broadband internet access across the country. Unions responded enthusiastically to the president's reforms. One major part of the Infrastructure Act, which is often overlooked, is the fact that it provides unions with necessary protections for their organizations. The Act requires employers who intrude on collective bargaining rights to face financial damages. This is the first time since the Wagner Act of 1935 that a provision like this was put into place. In many respects, 
It's easy to look at Biden's support of unions as a strategy to gain key worker support in battleground states. But regardless of his motivations, unions are getting better protections under his administration. The worrying number of Trump voters who are also union members was clearly weighing on the minds of Democratic leaders. Amongst the North American Building Trade Union, 48% support Trump, while 47% support Biden. Strikes have proved to be incredibly popular with the American public. A shift in the zeitgeist has clearly occurred. Americans are no longer content to work their days away, while the billionaire class becomes exorbitantly more rich from profits derived from the workers' labor. In October 2021, Strikes swept the entire country in what union representatives called Striketober. It began with the overworked nurses who toiled in Buffalo's Mercy Hospital. They let off a powder keg of resentment against employers and their shifty practices. Then, the first large-scale strike began at one of the nation's wealthiest companies, Kellogg's. There, the Frosted Flakes, who run the company, were exploiting legacy and transitional workers. The latter workers suffered from long hours, mandatory overtime, and few sick days. Following a 70-day work action, the union voted against a tentative deal which proposed increased wages but maintained the unjust two-tier system of pay. Kellogg's responded by saying they would replace every single one of the workers, all 1,400 of them, unless the union agreed to their generous deal. In the end, the union voted to accept the botched Kellogg's deal rather than become unemployed. At John Deere, the UAW represented workers who had been seeking a better deal for themselves went on strike as well. Americans were overwhelmingly on the side of striking workers. Reportedly, small business owners were giving heavily discounted or free food to striking families. The rank and file of the union voted twice to shoot down proposals by John Deere. When presented with the third proposal, they voted by a small margin to approve the contract offered. Across the country, medical unions were protesting burnout as the coronavirus pandemic continued to put a hellish strain on America's healthcare workers. In McDonald's restaurants across the country, workers struck for a $15 minimum wage. As of September 2023, only 27 states in America require a minimum wage of over $10 per hour. Unsurprisingly, many of the states with incredibly low minimum wages are also vehemently anti-union and have been for centuries. This is not true in every case. In Florida, the minimum wage is $12 per hour. In Pennsylvania, Union Bastion, the minimum wage is only $8 per hour. The major work action that closed out 2021 was the creation of the Amazon Labor Union, or the ALU, founded and headed by Chris Smalls, a Hackensack, New Jersey native. To counter... Amazon claimed the union was actively intimidating non-members and coercing others to join with, quote, gifts of marijuana, unquote. Amazon proceeded to fire Smalls and his comrades after they staged a walkout to protest the lack of safety and PPE on the job. Smalls and his labor union are still in the process of standing up to America's most dangerous monopoly, 
The ALU has succeeded in organizing several facilities in New York. Although many of their attempts to organize outside the state have been met with serious opposition from Amazon. As Biden became more entrenched in office, he set his sights on attempting to regulate the gig economy. The IRS describes a gig economy as, quote, an activity where people earn income through on-demand work, services, or goods. Often it's through a digital platform like an app or website, unquote. Examples of gig work used to be jobs like babysitting, tutoring, and other freelance work. Companies today have monetized every aspect of production, convenience, and distribution. In addition to creating loophole-driven agreements that have made contracted gig work more common than W-2 forms. Entities like Uber and Lyft have made ride-sharing gigs an integral part of the United States economy. These two companies make hundreds of millions of dollars every year, and because they are relatively new, they face little regulation from the federal government. In early October 2022, Biden's Department of Labor suggested a serious overhaul to the way rideshare workers are classified. Since its inception, Uber and Lyft drivers were not employees, but contractors. The use of contract work as opposed to official employees saves companies up to 30%, but stiff the workers out of many benefits and protections they would have otherwise enjoyed. The announcement that Biden's administration would demand Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash drivers to be considered employees sent the stocks of ride-sharing companies tumbling. Anonymous Uber executives said they found the White House's decision quote-unquote troubling. They asked Julie Sue, Secretary of Labor, for clarification and wondered how this new rule would protect quote, independent work, unquote. Unsurprisingly, they don't seem to be concerned with the fact that their workers would prefer job security to the quote-unquote freedoms of independent work. As I write this, this regulation has yet to be codified, but plans are in place to officially enact it this year. In spite of much reform and regulation, which has helped union members grow, there were still serious red marks on Biden's record when it came to union support. As a senator, he supported NAFTA and other trade agreements, which seriously hurt American wages. Additionally, he supported the normalization of trade with China, which was largely opposed by trade unions due to the damages it would cause to American labor institutions. As president, he signed an executive order which made it illegal for rail workers to strike in anticipation of a major railroad walkout. Rail workers across the nation were incensed that Union Joe would invoke the centuries-old Railway Labor Act to force them back to work. The government did agree to wage hikes, but they refused to increase sick days in their arbitrated agreement. Rail workers would be forced to continue using unpaid off-time to go to the doctor or deal with any illness. Biden and the Democrats at large claimed that a railroad strike would have crippled the nation's economy as it would have come at a time of unprecedented inflation, as well as the holiday season. By 2023, Biden's lack of support for workers would prove itself dangerous. On February 3, 2023, one of the most calamitous train derailments in modern American history occurred. 
Around the small town of East Palestine, Ohio, a train carrying 151 cars derailed. Amongst the train cars were 20 cars which contained hazardous material. No one was killed, but many residents reported various medical issues. Over the course of the next two months, another two derailments occurred in Springfield, Illinois, and Calhoun County, Alabama, respectively. Although COVID had been corralled to manageable levels due to the government-sponsored distribution of the COVID vaccine throughout the second half of 2021 and 2022, work actions for better conditions continued unabated. Across the country, in publishing, healthcare, and teaching, workers struck for their rights. They found that when they remained strong together, they could achieve victory against any odds. In Minneapolis, the city, which had been dealing with ever-rising racial tensions, was now home to labor animosity as well. Teachers struck for better wages, smaller classes, and mental health care for their students. They achieved substantial gains in these areas. Similar results were tallied during the University of California academic workers' strike, as well as amongst publishers protesting for improved pay in Manhattan's HarperCollins Publishing Company. As 2023 began, employers must have believed they were out of the woods. They were sorely mistaken. America would be rocked by strikes in several of its most profitable sectors. Package and mail delivery, coffee brewing, car making, acting, and writing. In early August, Teamsters, who worked for the United Parcel Service, or UPS, announced a massive game-changing deal. UPS had clearly learned its lesson from the 1997 strike. Instead of wasting millions being uncooperative, UPS granted almost all of the union's demands. Teamsters won a historic wage increase for both full-time and part-time employees. Part-time employees were now given $21 per hour as a starting wage. Over the length of the entire contract, wages were due to rise by over $7.50 per hour. For full-time employees, the top rate of pay reached almost $50 per hour. Additionally, all drivers were immediately deemed regular package car drivers, ending the unfair two-tier pay system. Finally, all the vans and cars owned by the UPS now require air conditioning. Previously, drivers were literally dying of heat stroke in vans which had no AC. The coffee giant Starbucks was founded in the Pacific Northwest in the 1980s. Since then, it has exploded in popularity and profitability. Today, Starbucks rakes in over $20 billion in profits every year entirely due to the labor of the baristas they employ. Originally, Starbucks employees were represented by the United Food and Commercial Workers. However, once current Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz took charge, he made it his personal mission to destroy any union influence in his company. With the help of anti-union employees, he succeeded in decertifying the union in 1987. Defending his decision in his memoir, Schultz insidiously wrote, quote, If Starbucks workers had faith in me and my motives, they wouldn't need a union. Unquote. Under his autocratic rule, unionism lay dormant at Starbucks for decades. 
In 2004, however, the international workers of the world began a grassroots Starbucks union movement. Their attempts to form this union were, of course, met by company roadblocks. The National Labor Review Board found that Starbucks would fill stores which were experiencing worker agitation with employees who held anti-union beliefs, effectively dividing the workforce in any gains the union had made. In 2008, the NLRB concluded Starbucks had committed no less than 30 separate labor rights violations. Starbucks workers would not be cowed forever by Schultz and his greed. By 2014, workers began grumbling against appearance-related policies such as the no-tattoo policy, as well as their pay and working conditions. In 2021, workers formed Starbucks Workers United, or the SWU. The SWU has been fighting an uphill battle against a corporate colossus. Starbucks has responded despotically to the union. In several locations, such as Buffalo and Memphis, workers were fired for attempting to unionize. In a leaked memo, Starbucks officials said baristas striking in Denver should be prepared for, quote, benefits and wages to be essentially frozen, unquote. In 2023, Schultz was called to testify before Congress and the NLRB once more. He remained incredulous when confronted with multiple allegations of union busting. Starbucks is now using the recent resurgence of the conflict between Palestine and Israel to shamefully continue their union busting campaign going as far as to lodge legal complaints against the union statements in support of the Free Palestine Movement, which were made on social media. In the field of writing, overworked television show writers were experiencing a serious challenge. Contract negotiations were breaking down with producers and their representatives. On April 18, 2023, over 97% of the members of the Writers Guild of America, or the WGA, voted to strike for better conditions. On April 18, 2023, over 97% of the members of the Writers Guild of America, or the WGA, voted to strike for better conditions, fewer hours, and to defend themselves against the insidious ways in which media companies wanted to use AI. Hollywood writers rushed to support their union and the least fortunate writers in it. J.J. Abrams, Adam McKay, and Shonda Rhimes were but a few of the A-list writers who donated generously to support striking writers who were facing financial hardship because of the work action. Producers responded with the usual claims. One line producer, however, Ian Wolfe, proceeded to rev his car engine and purposely sped up when confronted by peaceful picketers outside the studio in which they all worked. He admitted to trying to scare the riders, while also admitting that he attempted to coerce Teamsters to cross the picket line, to no avail. Wolf was fired, and thankfully both sides of the dispute decried the attempts at intimidation and violence. Producers promised to wait out the union. An anonymous producer said, quote, The endgame is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses, unquote. Soon it was revealed the work action was costing California State over $500 million and affecting numerous other industries. 
with a great majority of the public against them and political pressure exerted from the state house, producers decided to negotiate much earlier than they originally speculated. Several writers and A-list actors refused to support their comrades on the picket line. Stephen Amell, best known for his role as the Green Arrow, said that striking was a, quote, reductive negotiating tactic, unquote. He faced such blowback that he officially apologized and was found weeks later on the picket line. Drew Barrymore, heiress to one of the oldest and richest acting families in America, resumed her show early, saying, quote, it was time to get back to work, unquote. She, too, was forced to apologize and has since been ostracized from the film community, as well as taken off of several projects. Barrymore quickly reversed her decision and halted production on her show within a week. Bill Maher also broke ranks with the WGA. He called union demands, quote-unquote, kooky. When threatened with boycotts and picket lines at his show, Bill Maher made a hasty retreat as well. These millionaires betrayed their comrades during an unprecedented work stoppage. They could have been like Bob Odenkirk, at the forefront of seeking a better deal for their less fortunate colleagues. Instead, they chose a selfish path and reaped what they sowed. In the end, the WGA, despite intimidation, strike-breaking, and conservative media analysis, won a triumphant deal which raised wages and also provided safeguards against the use of AI. In 2012, the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG, officially merged with the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, or AFTRA. This was done to more effectively represent actors who were increasingly appearing in both movies and television. For a long time, the two entities worked alongside one another, so the merger was a logical choice. They marched together in 1980 and 2000 in favor of actors receiving residual payments in film and in commercials. In 2023, the union's grievances had piled up, and they were now at a breaking point. They want to see better pay and on-set practices, and they are also attempting to regulate the new industry-wide trend of self-tapes. Prior to COVID, auditions for film, TV, and commercials occurred on-site in front of producers, executives, and specific crew members. Now actors are expected to light film, and edit their own auditions, which are sorted through after the fact. A-list actors like Rami Malek and Jennifer Lawrence signaled their willingness to strike for a, quote, transformative deal, unquote. In the face of a poor contract proposal by the producers, actors voted by 98% to strike. The proposed deal would have granted producers the ability to use any extra's likeness in any film, for a single day player rate payment to the actor. This would not only short the actor, as they would not receive residuals for their appearance on screen in a potentially infinite number of movies or shows, but it would effectively phase out extras in films and TV, as well as many of the crew positions whose working hours are dependent on the use of extras over multiple days of shooting. The strike began on July 14, 2023, and almost immediately, producers began their underhanded tactics. 
They specifically had several ficus trees pruned almost entirely of their leaves because protesters had been using these trees as shade from the mid-July sun while on the picket lines. Suspiciously, the other trees around the lot remained untouched. It was not until late this month, October 2023, when producers finally decided they would meet with the actors whose performances have netted them billions in profit collectively each year. The talks rapidly fell apart after producers accused the union of demanding a, quote, levy, unquote, on streaming platforms. Fran Drescher, president of SAG-AFTRA, was perplexed at the producers' claims. She asserted that the union is simply seeking an adjustment to the way actors are being paid for streaming content. Their current pay models are based on residuals gained through television and films, which are completely incompatible with current streaming rates. Additionally, this so-called levy would cost customers a grand total of 54 cents each much less than the substantial price hikes which, curiously, each streaming platform has implemented over the past few months. Stepping in to try to end negotiations was George Clooney. He headed a committee of other A-list actors who were proposing a new initiative. They said they would put forward millions of dollars of their own money toward paying union dues, health care, and pension plans. These assertions could be viewed positively. It's nice that millionaire actors are attempting to bear some of the burden. But the fact that it came at a time when negotiations for a new contract were breaking down and in the middle of the strike allowed for this to effectively muddy the waters. Perhaps these A-listers should have proposed something similar before negotiations fell apart and a strike was called. Either way, Union heads consider this coalition seeking an end to talks as an attempt to undermine the union's bargaining position. On October 27, 2023, producers have promised to come back to the negotiating table. But as of yet, no deal has been struck to end this ongoing work action. After years of dithering with ineffectual leadership, the UAW, or United Auto Workers of America, elected a new president. Sean Fain was born in Kokomo, Indiana. His father was police chief, and his grandfather was a UAW union worker on the assembly line at GM. After Fain took the position as president of the union, he made it clear he would not be content with the status quo. When talks began with the big three, Stellantis, Ford, and GM, Fain pulled no punches. He asked for a revolutionary deal and demanded the contract negotiations be done in the open so that the public had the full ability to see what union members suffered and what they were requesting. Speaking on the nature of the deal the union was seeking, Fain said, quote, I know our demands are ambitious, but I've told the companies repeatedly, I'm not the reason the members' expectations are so high. What's driving members' expectations is the big three's profits. You can't make $21 billion in profits in half a year and expect members to take a mediocre contract. You can't make a quarter trillion dollars in North American profits over the last decade and expect us to keep aiming low and settling lower, unquote. The UAW wished to see an end to tears, a massive wage increase, and a four-day work week. The Big Three delayed negotiating with the union in spite of having the union's demands on hand four weeks prior to when they were due. Fain says, quote, 
I've told them, the big three, repeatedly, September 14th is a deadline, not a reference point. UAW family, I'm sad to report that the big three is either not listening or they are not taking us seriously, unquote. Speaking on GM and Stellantis' refusal to bargain in good faith with the union, Fain says, quote, Unfortunately, many employers across the country are willing to break the law and incur the meager fines and penalties that result as just the cost of union busting, unquote. The only company willing to negotiate with the UAW prior to the strike was Ford. It seems the employers at Ford have genuine interest in working with the union. It was a far cry from the Battle of the Overpass days. Regardless, the deal Ford presented was still extremely poor in the eyes of UAW workers. Ford's deal included an overall cut in real wages, which equated to nearly 9% over the life of the contract. Additionally, it contained language which gave Ford the ability to transition its entire workforce to temporary positions if the company so chose. Finally, it offered no adjustment to the standard of living, just meager lump sum bonus payments to the workers. To illustrate the point, Sean Fain draws on the example of Sarah Schaumbers, a third-generation Ford employee and single mother. She started as a temporary worker. It took her six years to become quote-unquote permanent and make only $16 per hour. It would take another 10 years for her to reach the top pay tier of $32 per hour. For all of Henry Ford's faults, he did make a point to pay his workers not just a living wage, but a thriving wage, which supported whole families. In the same time that Sarah toiled her life away, Ford made billions on the labor people like her provided. Fain calls this situation in America a, quote, race to the bottom, which has been driven in part by an army of permatemps. These are workers who often work seven days a week, 12 hours a day, for months on end, with no commitment from the company to their future, unquote. Fain went on to say, quote, Today we are once again living in a time of great inequality. The rich are getting richer while the rest of us are getting left behind. It's up to us once again to turn the tide against corporate greed by demanding labor's share of the value that we produce. That's why we went to Ford and proposed a double-digit pay increase, just like the big three CEOs have received over the past four years, because we know our members are worth the same and more. If shareholders and CEOs are lavishing themselves with the value we create, then it's our turn for our fair share. If Ford thinks we will accept a single-digit pay increase and no cost-of-living allowance, then I hope these shareholders know how to work on an assembly line, because those are going to be the only ones left to build cars come September 15th." Unquote. Speaking on globalization, Fain says, quote, "...the big three want the power to take our jobs and the products we build and move them to other countries where they can more easily exploit workers." That results in massive job loss that guts local economies and rips apart families as workers uproot themselves from their lives and their homes to travel all across the country to get another job. What's even more shameful is that the big three would continue to threaten us with plant closures during the greatest economic run in their history. That's economic terrorism, plain and simple. 
if Ford wants built in America to mean something, then it has to mean something, unquote. Fain goes on to state the undeniable fact that the American population is one of the most overworked in the entire world. He states that workers in Germany work three months less than workers in America. This has not limited Germany's economic capabilities. Fain says, quote, You know, I heard this saying once, every billionaire is a policy failure. Truer words have never been spoken. Billionaires, in my opinion, don't have a right to exist. The very existence of billionaires shows us that we have an economy that is working for the benefit of the few and not the many. I say the same is true for poverty wages and long hours. We need to wipe them out. The labor movement once fought for a vision of work life in which everyone had eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for recreation. Sadly, it feels like we've gone so far backward that we have to fight just to have the 40-hour work week back. Why is that? So another asshole can make enough money to shoot himself to the moon? We need to get back to fighting for a vision of society in which everyone earns family-sustaining wages and has enough free time to enjoy their lives, see their kids grow up, and their parents grow old. Rather than working with us, Ford has rejected all of our quality-of-life proposals, and they even rejected our demand that Juneteenth be a paid holiday. Let that sink in. A day that's not just of a historic importance to all of us, but a symbol of our shared values and the progress we still need to make as a country. It's shameful. Unquote. In spite of ample warning and negotiating time, the Big Three refused to offer actual concessions before it was too late. At midnight on September 15, 2023, the UAW struck the Big Three. It would not be a standard work action. Fain proposed a stand-up strike. Factories and assembly lines would be targeted individually based on the parts they produced, in the hopes of jamming up the production lines of Ford, GM, and Stellantis. Its impact was felt right away, as several assembly lines across the country grew quiet. Companies in Europe began signaling losses, while the Union Pacific Railroad said it was contemplating reworking contracts because of financial stress caused by the strike. The action has unprecedented support from the public. Gallup polling suggests 75% of the American public supports the strikers. It proves decisively the fight for better working rights has no political ideology. On October 25th, after suffering serious losses throughout the strike's duration, Ford decided to throw in the towel. They reached a tentative agreement with UAW leadership. The proposed deal increases wages by 25%. When factoring in cost of living and other benefits, it amounts to a 33% increase in wages. On top of this, Sean Fain said that the lowest-tier part-time employee would see wage increases which equated to over 150% of their original wage. Most amazingly, the UAW got the historically anti-union Ford company to agree to end tiered pay. In the wake of the agreement, Ford shares rose by 2%. The other two members of the Big Three, Stellantis and GM, have failed to offer anything like a substantial deal, but the Ford contract will definitely serve as a template for all future negotiations. Automakers argue that the UAW's demands 
will seriously hinder the ability of car manufacturers to compete with non-union car makers like Tesla, but they cannot hide their quarterly statements. They have plenty of money for shareholders and executives, but when it comes time to pay the people who actually create their products and allow them to make any money at all, their coffers mysteriously run dry. This show is due to be released on Halloween. Regardless of when you hear it, I hope you understand how scary the situation is in America today. The American economy is sustained by six massive monopolies. Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook, Netflix, and Gilead Sciences. If one or several of these entities were to fail, the fallout would be worse than that of 2008 or 2020. If this were to happen, poor people would be blamed and divided once more by the media and government simply for daring to demand reasonable social and financial protections and reform. But whether it's in the textile mills of Lowell, Massachusetts, the gallows of Chicago, Illinois, the streets of Pullman's town, or the white tent city of Ludlow, Colorado, people now understand that they were not merely machines. They knew this intrinsically already. They did not need a union to tell them so. But because the force of capitalism and corporate greed is so great, a single person cannot hope to stand against it, no matter how noble their ideas or how staunch their opposition. This makes unions a necessity. People found power in the union, and unions found their power with the people, but something went wrong along the way. Employers, Criminals and many government officials worked hand-in-hand to manipulate the once sacrosanct relationship between worker and union representative. In the wake of FDR's presidency, the true relationship between labor racketeers and government agencies which were bent on destabilization was revealed. Destroying the labor movement for years to come, labor was dying. Stuck on life support in the face of a conservative resurgence, poor leadership, and greed. It took a truly cataclysmic period of economic devastation for the labor giant to wake from its slumber. The giant stumbled feebly at first, unable to find footing in a world they did not recognize. Through their travels, the giant finally saw themselves, gleaming in a pool of tears cried by the millions of destitute peoples who had suffered at the hands of capitalism. Whatever lies ahead for the giant, one thing remains clear. The wounds they've suffered are only skin deep. If there's one thing labor was able to do, it was survive. The fact that labor rights are on the rise and at the forefront of the American news cycle again after decades of regression is extraordinary in itself. The fact that labor rights are slowly rising and gaining popularity with the masses like never before shows that the labor movement remains strong and more importantly, versatile. It shows that the links forged in the American furnace through acts of solidarity remain unbroken, and that they will remain so only if we add more fuel to the furnace's fire. History is made every single day. This is an overlooked fact. History is often obscured, forgotten, or manipulated by the powers that be in order to frame themselves in the best light. So it was with the American labor movement. 
there are relatively few examples of labor rights figures who make it into the media cycles in America. When they are portrayed, it's as gangsters and manipulators of workers' rights. There were people like this in the American labor movement, just as there are people like this in any organization. But on the whole, the labor rights movement in America and across the globe is filled with everyday people like you and me, attempting to right the wrongs of the past in order to make a better future for themselves, their families, and their friends. I truly believe history is worth protecting, and it is essential to view it from the scope of those who were most affected by its events. Studied closely, history is insurmountable value and insight on which we can draw in the modern day. Through the study of history, we've come to understand that the rights which we take for granted today had to be won with blood, sweat, and tears from lawmakers and employers the world over. They don't want us to fight back, but they also don't want to give us an inch. This is exactly why areas of history involving the poor and downtrodden rising up are purposefully skimmed over in school curriculums. With that in mind, I'd like to share with you a line from the anime, One Piece. Quote, History is mankind's greatest treasure. Now that it's been passed on, it will illuminate the path to your future. However, you must pass it on as well, or its light will disappear with the next generation. Unquote. I made this series in the hopes of passing down the knowledge I have gained on the labor movement through extensive research. I hope it has proved insightful, thought-provoking, and illuminating for those of you who have just begun studying the history of American labor rights. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Turning Tides. This marks a year of creating Turning Tides for Melissa and I, and the experience has been amazing thus far. The podcast has steadily grown, thanks to the support of everyone who's listened. A small, worldwide community is growing with this podcast, and I'm so excited to see how far it will go. I'd like to especially thank Stephen Guerra and Jerry Landry, and of course, the incredibly hot Melissa Marie Brown. Without their support, the show would be floundering in a pool of my own mismanagement. This series in particular has been harrowing. I realized somewhere in the middle that eight episodes was perhaps a bit too much for a series. The mental fry I felt by the time I was covering the 2011 financial crisis was real. With that in mind, Melissa and I are taking a break from turning the tides for the holidays. This quote-unquote vacation will consist of Melissa and I writing even more. We both have a dozen separate screenplay ideas which have been neglected as I have attempted to conclude this series in a timely manner. We will be working on that for the holidays and trying not to get COVID for the third Christmas in a row. We'll be returning in the new year with the sequel to the first series from this past year. That's right. Turning Tides will step onto the boot of Italy once more and cover the harrowing hundred years of history between 1900 and 2000. Italians had taken their first footsteps toward being a quote-unquote great European power. Now, 
they would find their stride. Thank you all again for listening. If you know someone who would like the show, please tell them about us. We're on all major podcasting platforms, and we'll be uploading a good portion of our episodes to YouTube in the coming months. If you've appreciated the year of content we've delivered to you so far, there's something you can do that will not only help the show, but it will fill me with warm feelings. If you rate the show, which takes only two taps on your phone or device, it will allow us the ability to reach more people. If you write a review filled with constructive criticism and what you like about the show, even more people will find it. Your ratings tell me how you feel about the show, but also what things I need to improve. And they let us reach a wider audience. I am perhaps the biggest critic this show has, besides Melissa, and I'm constantly striving to improve its quality and its content. If you have any suggestions, feel free to email the show directly or state them in your review. Again, Thank you all so much for this incredible year. I'm your host, Joseph Pescone, and until January, Turning Tides is signing off for now. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Threads, YouTube, and Facebook at The Turning Tides Podcast. That's at The Turning Tides Podcast. And donate on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to rate and review Turning Tides on whatever platform you use to listen and share the show on social media. It really helps us to bring the show to more listeners. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'd also like to say thank you to Movo Photo. We use their sound equipment for this podcast, as well as all of our other projects at Antics Entertainment. They make great equipment at great prices, and we really appreciate that they make content creating so accessible for indie creators like us. Check them out on social media at Movo Photo, M-O-V-O-P-H-O-T-O. Thank you again.